As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Um, as always, I'm I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm here with, uh, with my dad, John. How are you doing today? Yeah, very well, thanks, Tim. And uh, looking forward to our discussion about climate anxiety. Yes, uh, a bit of a gear change from the last few weeks, but today we're going to be talking about about climate change, about mental health, young people. It's a, it's a really interesting topic that we've been enjoying doing some research for. Um, obviously, we, we're we're talking, um, as everyone knows, and when this goes out, probably still during the time of, of the war in Ukraine, uh, which has been dominating the news agenda. Uh, and one of the things it's really squashed out, out of uh, existence, out of the coverage of, was a um, a really major report by the IPCC, that's the, the UN's kind of climate change body, um, which came out uh, in terrible, terrible timing on the 28th of February, just a few days after Putin sent the tanks into Ukraine. Um, but it was actually a really major report following on from the COP26 climate summit that was held in the UK just last year. Um, I don't know if you spotted that, John, when it came out. Yeah, no, I was very interested in the report, and uh, but also interested to see how it was being um, r- reported in in the mainstream media. And and by and large, it was again a fairly doom and gloom message, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah, it, it, the kind of top line the scientists were saying was basically that there is a very brief window of time, possibly to the end of this decade alone for us to act to avoid irreversible catastrophic destruction from climate change um uh, 40% of the world's population that's about 3 and a half billion people are described as highly vulnerable to climate crisis uh and they say if if rising temperatures is not kept to around 1.5 degrees celsius we we're going to see sweeping destruction of ecosystems habitats and entire species so it was a pretty pretty depressing gloom laden laden summary Yes, and, and uh, there was a expressly stated that inaction will lead to death, um, which I think at one level you can see the the seriousness, the importance of this. But there's another agenda here, isn't it, which is um, the need to try to raise uh, awareness and, and to try and impose a, a level of complacency. Yeah, I mean, that's... That's why I think the the rhetoric is always turned up to 11, um, because for the very reason we started off discussing, these reports are released on a basically annual basis. 
and and they and they they slip down the news agenda incredibly quickly in this case they've been replaced by admittedly a major story the the crisis in ukraine but even so it's very difficult for the scientists and for the the un to actually grab and then hold and sustain the world's attention outside of these kind of fleeting summits like cop 26 yeah, and I can imagine that a lot of uh, climate charities and activists must have felt rather frustrated that uh, their their moment to to really um, take hold of the news agenda and promote their own perspectives w- was lost because of the dominance of of the uh, the war story. And I, I've heard it said that it takes the oxygen out of any other news story. It's, there's only one story which people want to talk about. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And you can kind of understand understand why um you know journalists and the media are always drawn towards something that's Im- immediate and that's closer to home a- and a war that's happening in our own continent uh unprecedented in in for, for decades and decades is always going to grab the attention more than the next kind of doom laden step in this slow burn unfolding centuries long issue of climate change which is i think has been the huge challenge for for kind of climate communicators scientists and activists all along is how do you grab people's attention and how do you drive policy responses when the issue is such an enormous long-term multi-lifespan kind of thing yeah and i think the question then really is is it possible that this very dystopian view of that that basically the planet is doomed that um whatever we do um disaster is threatening whether that is actually counterproductive whether it leads to a sense of of hopelessness and despair Hmm. i think there's certainly um you you can see a kind of growing thread among some of the narrative around climate change which i think there's been a notable shift in the last five maybe ten years from this is a really urgent crisis we must act and that that thread remains but there's a new theme which is uh, it's too late or it's almost too late and, and there's a sense in which that fatalism and nihilism and depression sets in among people who would otherwise you'd think be kind of very engaged and motivated to hear the message are starting to say particularly the younger people do you know what what's the point you know the 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 baby boomers the old the adults in the room have ruined it have screwed up our lives and our futures and and that actually it paradoxically can have the risk of leading to kind of less action rather than more yes and and certainly i was interested to go back and and read the ipcc report with some care i mean you know i have to say straight away that uh, neither of us are experts on climate change but nonetheless it's obvious that this is a major issue uh, to, to coin a phrase it's a matter of life and death and therefore hmm. it's important that we um think about it and um i i waded my way through this ex- enormous report i mean it's utterly amazing that, of course that all this information and data is available entirely free on the internet the if you download the entire IPCC report with all the data, it's over 200 megabytes, all, way, all entirely free and available for anybody to, to read and study. So, which that in itself is quite remarkable, isn't it? I mean, it, certainly the authorities can't be accused of hiding information, or you know, uh, which, which is often, again, conspiracy theories uh, or theorists would, would claim. 
Um, I, I, I don't think that's the case. I, th I think the information is there. The problem is is, is a, almost of information overload. There is so much information in there that trying to see the wood for the trees is, is pretty difficult. Yes, and I think that leads to, to why sometimes the messaging... So, you know, so I think it's important to stress, of course, neither of us are climate scientists, but we all accept the reality of climate science. We both, you know, think that the people who spend their lives studying this stuff know what they're talking about and we need to hear hear their conclusions. But but there's a distinction between the science in the report and the rhetoric with which it is promoted and and shared. Um, and, and I think it's because the report is dense, because climate science is complex and it's slow and it's accumulative, um, I think there is a there's a need to kind of layer on top of that uh, a, a more comprehensible message, and there is a risk that sometimes that message is always getting dialed up in 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 extremities more and more because you know the last year's report didn't cut through, so this year's got to cut through. We got to really make sure that the the kind of the quotes that go with it are are as terrifying as possible, and that's how you get things like I mean, for example, the the UN Secretary General. Um, called it an atlas of human suffering uh, at a press conference and said delay means death and you know I'm sure he would say that those are those kind of sentiments are justified by the content of the report but it's a it's a message which is you know the the doom mongering is certainly being being dialed up as high as it can go yeah and it, it's interesting that if drilling down into some of the details of this report the, the scientists gave five different scenarios looking <clears throat> forward to the end of the century, all the way to 2100. Um, and they, the scenarios were dependent on the level of, of response and mitigation that the global community uh, undertook. And the best case scenario, scenario uh, number one, is where temperature change as a whole over the entire century peaks at just over 1.5 and remains around that level all the way to the end of the century. Um, scenario two, it peaks just below two and, and then slightly goes down. Scenario three, it goes up to two and a half degrees at the end of the century and is continuing to rise. And then scenarios four and five are much worse, um, increasing to four degrees or, or five degrees. And those are basically scenarios where no real action is taken uh, between now and the end of the century. Humanity just carries on blithely pouring out CO2 into the atmosphere and doing nothing, which realistically, I think it's extraordinarily hard to imagine that, that that's going to happen, isn't it, over the next yes. six, 80 years of the century, that humanity is not going to do anything? Exactly. I mean, even if we, you know, even if humanity collectively forgot or willfully chose to ignore the fact that we know about climate change, it's actually just economics. You know, new wind and solar energy um, is is at present cheaper in many places in the world to install than building a coal or gas powered um, uh, fuel, uh, power station. And and so I think e the idea that we're going to carry on digging out coal and burning it at the current rate as the population increases for the next 80 years is is simply impossible it's not going to happen even even if we didn't want to act on climate change e you know economics is going to make us choose thankfully some greener technologies because they are just cheaper and better and, and better for business yeah and, and one of the things which i found utterly astonishing is the way that the, all the major car companies are committed to phasing out 
both uh, petrol, gas and, and diesel engines and converting entirely to plug-in electric vehicles by the, nine, by the 2030s, um, 2040s at the latest. So um, there are extraordinary changes going on, which means that in, realistically it's much more likely that we're looking at scenarios somewhere between one and two probably realistically given the changes that are already underway and the, and the other changes that are likely to happen and I think when you look at that then there's no doubt that yes even these good scenarios there is going to continue to be significant global impact across the world particularly in the poorest countries in sub-saharan africa and so on and the low-lying countries uh, but the doomsday scenario seems exceedingly unrealistic yes and i think it's when you hold up that data in the ipcc report with some of the more extreme claims among climate activists that you start to see how divergent the two sides who should ostensibly be on the same side you know the greta thunbergs your, your green activists of the world should be in lockstep with with climate science and yet many of them are actually when you read or dig into some of their messaging it's really diverging from what we're talking about from these ipcc the realistic ipcc uh, kind of emission pathways i mean one that really jumped out to me I, I recently watched the film um don't look up uh, which is on netflix which is a kind of uh, explicit satire of climate complacency it's about um two scientists touring the world trying to raise awareness of the fact that a a meteorite is crashing on on a collision course with earth and no one wants to listen and takes them takes them seriously and the director adam k who who, who made the film to try and um you know tr tr uh, trigger people's associations with climate complacency he, he's on the record as saying we've got six to eight years before the climate is so chaotic we live in a permanent state of biblical catastrophe um and f he made that comment on twitter and fascinatingly um, one, it's not true, but two, underneath it, the initial, the first reply I found was by a British climate scientist saying, hang on, that's, that's not true. Where's your evidence? Don't like, it's bad, but it's not that bad. And you've got a, you, you know, you, Adam Kay, have got a significant um, platform here. Why are you spreading what is effectively kind of hysteria? That's right. And uh, I was very struck by a piece in the Atlantic magazine where, uh, it quoted um, a number of IPCC scientists who's saying basically they expect that even in the realistic worst projections that they've come across, in other words, the four and the five, the terrible outcomes, they say that, in fact, they expect that average life expectancy will continue to rise, that poverty and hunger rates will continue to decline, and that average incomes across the world will, will go up. Hmm. Uh, climate change will ruin individual lives and kill individual people and it may drag down the rate of improvement in human well-being but on average we're generally in the climate change field and not talking about futures that are worse than today yes and that's a message that you really have to struggle to find i think in in the contemporary media um i think there's plenty of complacency there's a lot of dismissal from particularly from some parts of the media about the problem and then on the other side there's a lot of alarmism but it is quite hard i think to find that message that yes things are bad and we must act now but even in the worst case scenario the world in 2100 is going to be better than it is in the, it was in the year 2000.
You're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Yes, and, and of course, we don't want to um, dismiss the concerns because I think what is becoming clearer and clearer is that this, I'm afraid, is another justice issue. Well, what will happen is the rich countries who are able to protect themselves, who are able to switch to electrical vehicles, who are able to use uh, cheap energy to do their air conditioning and various mitigation, uh, will be able to carry on living their lives largely unaffected. And the people across the globe whose, whose lives are potentially going to be very severely impacted are the poorest of the poor. Um, and so climate change becomes yet another factor which increases the the diversity between the rich and the poor across the globe Mm. yeah i think that's a really important point and it's you'd hate to live in a world in 2100 where there is this kind of you know climate apartheid where us in the uk or the us have managed to mitigate and adapt uh, as you say we're using we're using cheap solar energy we're driving electric vehicles our air is mostly clean uh, um, whereas people in you know the Seychelles and Vanuatu and Bangladesh are, are living in a really kind of hellish hellish landscape where their their, their cities have been wiped out by rising seawater and and they have no ability to cope with the kind of soaring temperatures. Um, yeah, and it isn't just the low lying areas because uh, projections would suggest that uh, you know large areas of of sub Saharan Africa and North Africa as well would be almost unlivable. You know, once you get to temperatures in the 40s, um, baseline air temperatures in the 40s, um, without continuous air conditioning, it, it's simply not possible for human beings to mm. to live in those conditions, and therefore. The worry is that large areas of the tropical regions may become almost uninhabitable. And I think it's it's that kind of fears which is driving, when you look at younger people, the people who will inherit this world, basically my generation, but really below in their teens and 20s, they're increasingly fatalistic about the climate crisis. I mean, I don't know if you saw this fascinating survey that asked 10,000 16 to 25 year olds across 10 different countries about climate change. And, and the results were really very damning. I mean, more than half of them said that they believe, quote, humanity was doomed. Three quarters said that the future was frightening. 55% said that they believed that they would have fewer opportunities than their parents. Um, and 39% said they were reluctant to have children at all. Yeah, so so this is, I th- this is a very, very interesting and I think important article. It was published in The Lancet in December 2021. And we'll, it's on... Uh, free access and we'll um, put the link in the notes to this podcast but um, as you say it gives this very very strong impression of uh, the the levels of uh, both anxiety but also senses of hopelessness um, amongst young people and and fascinatingly it's across the world Uh, they 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 sampled countries ranging from brazil Finland, France, India, Nigeria, Philippines, UK, USA, and so on. And uh, although there were subtle differences between the countries, actually what's remarkable is is how similar uh, attitudes are from young people ac- across the world. And in the, in the discussion on the paper, they, they focused on the fact that it's 
large numbers of young people across the world regard governments as failing to acknowledge or act on the crisis in a coherent, urgent way or respond to their alarm. And this is experienced as betrayal and abandonment, not just of the individual, but of young people and future generations generally. Hmm. So it's... Do you think that that it's causing serious mental health problems then for younger people? This this you know climate anxiety goes beyond a kind of frustration to actually a kind of almost a clinical level of anxiety. Yeah, I do, and and um, there's quite a lot of evidence showing uh, significantly higher rates of expressed uh, mental health symptoms amongst young people and students than we've ever seen before. Uh, the the percentage of, of young people who would describe themselves as anxious or um, concerned about the future, unable to sleep, um, filled with feelings of foreboding and so on. Um, And of course, this is not just climate change. There are lots of other factors, um, concerns about employment and about inflation and and, and so on. But um, I, I think mental health specialists are aware there's been a, I think, massive increase in referrals of uh, children and adolescents, young adults, to mental health services in the UK and and across the world. And there's undoubtedly climate anxiety is part of this. Hmm. There was another survey by the American um, Psychological Association of 2,000 people in in the US. um, And and they they, um, said that more than two-thirds of adults reported saying they felt at least a little eco-anxiety but when you look at 18 to 34-year-olds in particular, uh, nearly half of them said that they feel stress over climate change in their daily lives. Um, uh, so it's really something which is is not just a, a few kind of particularly eco-conscious and aware teenagers, but this is actually, some of the research seems to be saying that that, that eco-anxiety, whatever you call it, climate stress, is something which is afflicting significant minority, if not nearly half, of, of young people. Yeah, and I was very struck by these figures from the Lancet article, particularly these two. First of all, 55% saying humanity is doomed, and 39% saying I'm hesitant to have children. That seems to me extraordinarily serious. Um, If almost half of young people, when polled, say that given this level of sense of doom and gloom they really wonder whether they should be bringing children into the world um that that seems to be extraordinary and 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 very concerning do you think we can point the finger at some of the more extreme fringe of the climate kind of um activists i mean that there's a famous video that's shared around um, extinction rebellion circles which is called advice to young people as they face annihilation um you know so so the message they're hearing is is that that climate change is an existential threat that the literal survival of their species is at risk um can we blame young people in that sense when when um the the scientists and others are saying a kind of a feeling filling the the kind of airwaves with with this kind of doom-mongering well i think what we're saying is it isn't the scientists apart from a few mavericks um but it is activists who have their own agenda and uh the more you know 
if I'm an activist for Extinction Rebellion, um, of course, the whole narrative of Extinction Rebellion is that we are about to become extinct unless we rebel. Mm. And <clears throat> we've got to be desperate because we're facing extinction. And the fact, you know, the inconvenient truth that actually that's not what leading climate scientists are saying nobody is talking about the possible extinction of humanity in the next 50 to 100 years um, is, is not something that um, the activists want to to reflect. They, so so I, why I, is I, that, do you think? What, what, in whose interest? Why have activists got themselves to a place where if the news, if the true news isn't bad enough, they almost invent bad news, like worse news. That's the fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> You're supposed to be a journalist. You're supposed to be able to use the English language. Worse news. Like what? What is going on there? What? Why? What? What? Why would human beings do that? And it's interesting, isn't it? And but I think, you know, if you're a cynic, you would say um, because it serves my interests because um this way i can get um better funding better awareness um support for my particular charity and so on um irrespective of the <clears throat> balance and the truth of of what i'm uh, of what i'm uh, disseminating mm. i wonder as well if there's something about um because for so many years the news genuinely was quite bad and and the scientists would come back each year with with quite negative scenarios. I think there's a there's a part of the green mentality for those who are who have taken that on as a form of identity that is conditioned themselves to everything must always go as bad as it can. So a genuinely good news like you know the falling price of solar or wind or the improvements in battery technology, um, um, or even the science suggesting, as you say, that, you know, average well-being and incomes will still rise, even in the worst case scenario. They almost can't compute that because their whole identity is based on the idea that humanity is shooting itself in the foot over and over again. Yeah, I think I think there's, there's definitely something in that. Um, but what is interesting is that if you take the Lancet um, article as... Um, representative is how extraordinarily widespread these attitudes you know how successful the climate doom doomsayers have been mm. and um i mean we're coming to the end aren't we, we we're going in our subsequent part two of this podcast i think it's really important to try to reflect together on on this from a, a christian perspective and, and say how do we uh, reflect about uh, and somehow balance between yes it's really important that we uh, are responsible in the way that we look after the climate and yes Christians need to be very fundamentally involved in creation care whilst at the same time no we don't fall into this terrible pessimism and doom about God's world yes because I think it's important to note that that not it's not only that the pessimism is is unwarranted as we say it's not attached to the actual science it doesn't follow the facts but it's actually also really counterproductive uh you know for for one it, it gives a uh, fuel to kind of climate denialism because the people who would like to be complacent and do nothing can point to the more extreme fringe and some of those extreme predictions that won't come true and say well this is why we could ignore the actual moderate scientists but it also um 
there are things that we can do. I mean, I was really struck by uh, a quote by one of the authors of the IPCC report we mentioned at the start, uh, Helen Adams uh, from, from King's College London. She said this, one of the things that I think is really, really clear in the report is that yes, things are bad, but actually the future depends on us, not on the climate. And what she's really trying to say is we need to stave off fatalism because if we, if we slip into fatalism, it's almost self-fulfilling. The worst will happen if we don't act because we believe that it's too late and it's not too late. The scientists are clear that it's not too late and that this kind of pessimism and fatalism could be really corrosive to gathering a movement that can press governments around the world to take more radical, costly action to, to reduce emissions. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. But I would also like to come back and say, I think Christian's understanding of the future is fundamentally different from this um, secular understanding that the future is created and fashioned by us in the present um, and it'd be interesting to try and sort of reflect together on those different understandings of of, of what the future actually is hmm. well that's a really exciting kind of teaser there for part two which is coming up next week where we're going to be taking this conversation on talking about what as you say what a christian response that finds a middle way between fatalism and complacency about creation care and, and what are differing perspectives on um, as you say the future and future hope might look like um, so looking forward to that conversation uh, and next week um, as always um, uh, thanks for listening first and foremost but if you'd like to get in touch with us um, we're excited to say we've got a new a new email address uh, rather than the old one you might have used before so the new one is molad m-o-l-a-d at premier.org.uk and we're we're really keen to hear questions from listeners um, you might have something you want to ask following up with something we've discussed or ask a completely unrelated question we're also really interested to hear if you have any ideas for topics that we could explore or, or maybe something you've seen in the news or a new scientific study that you think we could respond to um, so please do send us an email molad m-o-l-a-d at premier.org.uk um, and as always there's there's more resources you can read listen to and watch it at john's website that's uh, John Wyatt, J-O-H-N-W-Y-A-T-T dot com. Uh, it's a treasure trove of, of, of things to find and dig into. Um, so do, if you haven't checked that out, do have a look at that. Um, and for those who might be new to listening to Matters of Life and Death um, and want something else to get your teeth into while you're waiting for next week's episode, uh, there's plenty of episodes in our back catalogue uh, covering everything from COVID to infertility to misinformation online. Um, so do take a look at that. Um, you can find me online I'm at T.S. Wyatt on Twitter or you can find some of my journalism at tswyatt.com but otherwise uh, looking forward to speaking to you again next week John um, and thanks for listening everyone thanks a lot see you then you've been listening to Matters of Life and Death a podcast from Premier Unbelievable